not many people still know this, is... I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. Oh, secrets. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so, when I was a cadet, I had the opportunity to... What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about everything on and off the fireground. The views and opinions are those of the guest and myself, your host, Rain Gray. Today, we talk to Daryl Wiseman. He is a recently retired veteran of the Phoenix Fire Department, and despite not liking to be called an expert, uh, he is indeed an expert in my eyes, and he and I chatted about special operations. We chatted about education and career planning and retirement planning, actually. So we cover the whole gambit. Please enjoy. My brother, DW, tell me, uh, let's start off by you telling me a little bit about uh who you are and where you came from and how you got to how you got to be a retiree on the Phoenix Fire Department. It is crazy now. It's a little over a week now that I can say that I'm officially a retiree. I'm very uh I'm very proud of you. I'm happy for you. Well, thank and, you. And proud of you for getting there. It's exciting. It is pretty wild when you look at uh thirty two years paid on the department and then five years before that doing something for the fire department of some color shirt, be it a light blue, royal blue, whatever it was in the alarm room, and then a gray shirt as a cadet. So 37 years total, 32 paid, pretty just uh, unique career. So before, did you grow up in Arizona? I did, born and raised. So I grew up There's on not, a, not too many natives no. anymore, I feel like. That's strange. I grew up on a dirt road in my mother's childhood house. So she bought the house from her parents, and I grew up in that at uh, 32nd Street and Bell Road, just north. Wow. It was, when you, no, I'm not trying to put you too far into the Wayback Machine. Yeah, right. But was it, uh, was it as built up as it is now? <laughs> oh, no. It's strange because my aunt, uh, which is two years older than my mom, when she was growing up, like 18, 19, 20 years old, whatever, wanted to buy a corner and went to her dad and said, hey, I want to buy this lot, 10, 10 acres. And her dad said, that's crazy. That just now happens to be the northeast corner of 32nd Street and Bell. Right. So that is the Wayback Machine. But, <laughs> you know, a tremendous investment. You think of that dirt. And I still remember one time uh, Rural Metro showing up, which I was in the rural area then. And they put out a tree fire. And I think it was a young, young kid. It was a hook. It really was. And then we moved to the west side. And that's where I really got my impact. Because uh, this guy named Tom McCracken. I know that guy. I think we know that guy. Anyways, he and, he and I played soccer in seventh grade. So we've been friends for a long time. Nice. And his mother, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Carolyn, Mom McCracken, that's what I used to call her. Hi, Mom. And uh, she was a payroll clerk for the city of Phoenix. Fire oh, Department. interesting. Okay. So she told Thomas about uh, the cadet program. And when we were playing soccer, of course, chit-chatting and all that. And then in high school, so we went to high school together at Moon Valley High School. And he told me about the cadet program my sophomore year or junior year-ish. And then uh, you had to be 16 back then. So I turned 16 in August. And in October, I was down at the cadet program walking in the door going, Hey, I'm looking for Mr. Heikum. And uh, it happened to be him. And he goes, It's Captain Heikum. I'm like, oh. <laughs> He startled me. And then... And got you online right away. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you start looking at the timelines because you'll hear it August, October, and you'll see how that progresses. But uh, the neat thing about my evolution is Tom McCracken and I ended our careers together. 
he was on squad eight. I was on nine fifty seven, same house. Right. Been on engine eight before that. So we had been playing together for the last ten years. Yeah. And at the same time, Aaron Heikum is on engine eight. Or at least was. And yeah. then uh we got to finish our careers to get or my career together. Yeah. Yeah, Tom's still working, huh? Did he so so how old were you when you got on the job or got red shirted? So as in the academy, so that's interesting, is I got hired in the alarm room as a dispatcher when I was, I think, 19, and then got part-time, then full-time, and 20 years old. Here comes the August in the October correlation is I turned 21 in August, and I was in the academy in October. Nice. At 21. Right on. 1988, 88.3 Foghog. That's a class name, Foghog. Oh, yeah. And the shirt, the shirt shirt emblem is a, like a hog, fog hog, and it's some muscular looking fireman. They basically took a picture of Terry McHugh and (laughs) imposed it on the shirt. That's awesome. So when did Tom get on the job? Not that we're going to tell Tom's story, but. Kraken? Yeah. Was he in the same pipeline as you? No, he came a few years later. Um, I was actually an engineer on Engine 8 at the time, and he was on the ambulance. So really, we've been following each other uh, through life in general, which is great because Tom's outstanding, and we constantly harass each other. But uh, So I'm thinking that was 96-ish, so he had to be on right around that, 95-ish. Okay. Well, maybe one of these days we'll have Tom on. He can tell his story. Oh yeah, but <laughs> oh, um, it'll be all lies. I promise. He Especially you know what, what he says about you. <laughs> he almost made me fail high school because of the way he cheated off of me. That's so, the running story we have each, with each other. Anyways, keep going. It's always somebody. <laughs> so, so, so that was a. So you were young, man. Get on the job. You're still. I would still consider you young, relatively. But how many years has it been? Thirty-two years. Man, that's amazing. That's awesome. So, you. Ended your career. You said you were a 957. Mm-hmm. And um, so for those who are uninitiated, why don't you tell us what that, the kind of role and responsibility that a 957 plays in our system? So when I was a, an engineer on Engine 8, I got promoted out of Engine 8 to a captain and then would come back and substitute AWR, vacation, substitute teacher, however you want to say, for the 957s after that. So I've been a 957 off and on since 1999. And I took David Kenobi's position when he retired out of 957. And 957 in our system uh, originally was a single unit within the system, valley-wide. And then they initiated the the uh, UASI issue with the squads. Mm-hmm. And they took the sixth person there and they put it on the uh, north. So they now stood up the 957 north truck that runs north side of the valley and the south truck that runs the south side of the valley out of station eight and we happen to be the on-duty safety officer for special operations now also could be the safety officer for first alarm fires and greater which you know i could tell you a story about jeff and i Zintech, that ended our career at a fire having a good time to the night before our last shift. Anyways, uh, so we do go to first alarms and, you know, we do have our ISO system in place with our fits, but we show up and we take a look at the special hazards components. Uh, if there's propane involved, natural gas or those types of things. But secondary to that is, or primary to that is when we respond to any special operations call, we are the, um, what if, and the safety officer that lends, uh, 
a compromising ear to the rescue or hazardous sector officer. And what that means is if somebody's creating a plan, I'm going to come in and I'm going to question it, not in the sense of negatively, but I'm going to come in there and question it in the sense of, hey, what about this, 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 and this, and adding that safety component and making sure everything's covered right. from the plan down all the way to the boots on the ground and making sure people are gloves on, doing the right things, safety area, uh, the right people are in there accountability-wise, and just looking at the overall scene. Right. Well, and you guys, to to frame it, not only have you been in the program for some 20 years, it's the you're, you're coming in as a uh, hazmat or TRT expert, um, which lends you know credibility to this system. So you're as you're providing this kind of peripheral view, you're able to you're not only you know just some guy watching it from the outside. You're actually somebody who has some very specific subject matter expertise, and that lends a lot of support to the to the to the the organization of a call. So you have crews that are that are heads down doing the work, and somebody has to provide oversight. And even a sector officer who may be a technical specialist might be involved in the work and is directly watching the folks laboring and yet they may miss something big picture because they're so focused. So I use that word expert pretty lightly. I don't, uh, we're always learning. We're always looking at different things and experiences always provide that more, much more intelligence. So I don't consider that, but thank you. I look at <laughs> that oversight. You know, you look at how we establish the incident command structure and we have the ICS that's, uh, if you want to use altitudes, you know, some, we use 30,000 foot level. Right. So he's at the 30,000 foot level creating this incident action plan. And then you have your special operations officer, be it hazard sector and hazmat world or technical rescue world, you're going to have your rescue component. So those folks are looking at it below that, you know, as a sector within the incident action plan, if you want to use it somewhere between the, uh, 50, 15,000 to 20,000 foot level, creating their incident action plan that's going to support the overall and making sure things happen. And they do have a pretty significant span of control when it comes to uh, operations, depending on what it is. It could be mountain with uh, air operations underneath it. it, could be hazmat with your entry teams underneath it. So there's quite a lot of activity going on within that just one sector. As the on-duty safety officer, liaison also gets thrown in there mm-hmm. that we show up and we question the overall incident action plan from the incident command, which is fairly simple most of the time. And then you go down to that rescue or hazard sector officer and you look at it and you go, okay, question and answer. Then you look around the scene, you go, okay, let's cover this. Uh, I don't think I've ever had to stop an entire evolution because of a safety thing. Our folks are spot on. It's just you tweak a little here and there. Right. But then, yeah, you're looking at it and you're kind of making sure everybody's got their gloves on all the way up to the incident action plan. Your liaison even back to the incident action or the uh, incident commander just to make sure everybody's on the same page because you want this call to be fluid. You want it to be successful and timely. You don't want to be there beating people up. And, you know, our system during the summer is a little hot. So, yeah, it gets kind of warm, huh? Yeah. No, I think that the, it's it's interesting how that role helps strengthen the strengthen the system i think sometimes people get worried that it can uh it adds a layer of complexity or it adds a layer of of questioning which can take away from the uh the authority of of sector boss or the authority of an incident commander or whatever but i feel like it really does add value it adds a and i use when i say the word expert i recognize that there's degrees right of course (laughs) there are people out in the industry who have 
way more experience, way more technical knowledge. But inside of our system, you have somebody who's, who has a layer or two or three more of subject matter expertise or experience and can lend that experience to the system and where you have, maybe you have young operators, you have rovers, you have transient employees who may not have that same degree of, of confidence or expertise or whatever. And then on top of that, you add your 30 plus years of experience and you know, that's where that expertise, in my opinion, comes from, right? In that, in that system. So it adds so much value when it's brought into the command structure. And that, and I think one of the things you mentioned retired, which I am, and I got to retire with two overwhelmingly solid experts. And I'll use that word with Jeff Sintek and Tim Vinard. Yeah. And we'd been working a shift for quite a few years together as a, a team in relation to Jeff Sintek being 957 and Tim Vinard being the special operations battalion too. Right. And, I wanted to segue that one right into what I've heard from various people around the valley because, like I mentioned, 957 responds valley-wide. So when we go into other cities, because we are an automatic aid dispatch component that we we dispatch for 28 cities, and I, being the hazmat guy for the last however many years, know that we have 26 hazmat units, just units, in the valley total. Well, we're going to go to see those scenes, and we're going to interact with different company officers from different various agencies around the department department. And you take a look at what I've heard over the last month. Yeah. When you guys get here and when they say you guys, we're talking about Tim Bernard down to Jeff Sintek and myself. When you guys got there, we felt confident that this call is now going to go well and that you were going to come in and help us. You weren't going to come in and take over. You weren't going to come over and start belittling us and telling us this. You were going to come in and make sure that we ran a solid, safe, uh, program and that things would go well. And you, you, I took that as the ultimate compliment. Absolutely. You know, I learned that one honestly from Chief Compton from back in the day when they showed up in Oklahoma. He showed up in Oklahoma after the bombing and he uh, went to Task Force One, Arizona Task Force One, and he says, You know what, Chief? You're having a bad day. How can we help you today? It wasn't, we're going to take over. And that's not Jeff or Tim or I's thought process. It was, Hey, how can I help you? If it is more entrenched into making decisions, fair enough. If it's just nothing more than looking over the scene, making sure it's safe, we can provide that. That's what was great about how we interacted together. Yeah. Well, I can say when, you know, there's a couple of calls that you and I were on where, where we had a plan in place and you came in and you said, Hey, you need to be thinking about X and that, you know, putting that thought into my mind. Oh, okay. Well, we're now that we're, or Hey, your plan's going well. Have you thought about this one thing? And that makes a big difference because we, you know, at the end of the day, our job is as a, as a collective is to accomplish a mission. And so we have to be, we have to set our ego aside, let experts help shape what we're doing, right? And, and provide information to us so that we can, at the end of the day, accomplish the mission as safely and effectively as possible so that our members go home, you know, on a round trip ticket and, and Mrs. Smith gets the appropriate level of care and service that she deserves and, and needs and has called us for. So, so yeah, it's great to hear that, that around the Valley guys are like, Whoa, oh man, this is good that you guys showed up because it does add a level of confidence for you to guys come in and challenge the plan, bounce it off of your set of slides that you've seen and go, okay, based on what we know, this operation is going to go smooth or here's some things that we need to take, take into consideration to square ourselves 
square ourselves away. Yeah, and the fun part about that is the interaction that we have, <clears throat> knowing that you have a specialty background as well with technical rescue, correct? Mm -hmm. So you look at that and knowing coming into it, but you're still at the 30,000 foot level. You're right. not operating as a tech. You're not operating as rescue sector. You're at the 30,000 foot level. So there's that making sure everything gets touched. And you're looking at that and hoping that rescue does this and you're providing intel. So that's what's been great for uh, our folks is to see that and interact with the various colors of fire trucks. And it's just one solid team across right. the valley, be it technical rescue or hazmat. And I think that's where we lend our system to be in one of the stronger ones. Mm -hmm. When you take a look at how we respond and look at and we integrated this safety officer component. But that's where I came from, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. It's been uh, an absolute blast. I, I, Again, I've said this before. If I had a crystal ball, I could not have planned my career any better. I did all 32 years on A-shift, and, <laughs> and it wasn't as if I chose that. That's kind of unusual. It is very unusual. It just happened that way. Yeah. I mean, when I got – even on duty, when I went to uh, my first station is – uh, Ambo seven back in the day <laughs> with captain Harding, which I don't know if you knew Ed, Ed Harding. Harding? Yeah. yeah. What a phenomenal gentleman. Um, he's, I worked for some really solid captains that the world would be coming to an end. And they just look over and said, well, let's start over here. And that's where you start going. Wow. That's what I want to be like. Mm -hmm. You know, you got the Ed Harding's Jerry Lane Bill Toon, um, Hoyt Harvell, phenomenal folks. Ron Dykes, when it comes to special operations, Ron Jameson, when it comes to special operations, they don't get rattled. It's like, hey, let's just make sure this happens. So, yeah, I start Ambo 7, then I progress to, where did I go after that? Roving around, worked with Jerry Ladensack when I got a uh, paramedic patch over at Engine 9 and came in there on a rotating basis and then ended up at a home with Bill Toon over at Engine 6. And that's when I promoted out to Engineer to uh, Station 8 and worked with Hoyt Arvell. That's when I started my... Uh, my special operations was when you went to eight. Yeah, that was ninety five nice. or six. So you and I had talked about the fact there's not a plan or progression or a, a model for people to follow or to get into um, when it comes to developing or planning their career. And I wanted to hear because you know you you stayed on a ship the whole time. How'd you manage uh, that? Know, right. So so <laughs> so how does in your opinion like what's a way that we can progress and develop our career, do planning for our career. So like I said, it was a crystal ball guesswork for me. I, I had some uh, guidance on the front end. Uh, Terry Shields, back in the day when cadets, he and my recruit training officer provided some initial guidance and, and being creative and thinking about where you're going. But, you know, I'd always hear these questions <clears throat> or comments in the fire station. Hey, I'll, I'll, I want to be a captain someday. <laughs> someday. So someday you're just going to throw up a ball and say, I'm going to take the test or you're going to do this one day or you want to be an engineer or you want to be a medic. Have you done anything to prepare for that? Well, what does that mean? Well, so I really started looking at that and started questioning people and uh, having booters, probationary firefighters when I was on engine 14 for so many years, I really started entrenching myself with them professionally wondering where they wanted to go. And as of recent, I've sat down with quite a few of them just to see where they were on their career path. And hey, you know what? You might want to think a little farther in the future because you just can't take a test. It just doesn't happen every day. Right. We're looking at different schedules. Are we on a two-year schedule or a three-year schedule? What's the progression or what's the what are they projecting for promotions? 
And these guys are looking at me with these cross eyes going, what does that mean? So really we don't. So I really would dive deep if you want to talk about that. Yeah. So the diving deep really came down to um, putting down and writing down your pros and cons. It, it really gets down to visualization of what you want to do with your career. Yeah. 25 to 30 years is a short period of time. Trust it me. It goes by really fast. Uh, yeah. Wow. I blinked and I'm looking back going, really? You know, I was just talking with uh, Brian Johnston, and it was like we look back over because we followed the same career path, cadets, alarm room, and then he, he went on to be one of those chief things. Anyways, uh, it's weird when you start looking at how fast it is. Right. Then if you think that one day you want to be a captain and you just decide, well, the test isn't for two years because they just had it. Oh, well, where are you in your personal life? How is that going to correlate? Mm. What's that look like? Right. Not to change, shift gears in here, but what does the the social construct of a, of an organization? How does that play into it? Because there's there's my, what I mean by that is there's there's a certain idea of when it's okay. Mm. When when does it okay to <laughs> get into that pool? Culturally, you're talking. Uh huh. Oh, that's so. Second to the well, one day I want to be comment mm-hmm. is that well, I think I want to get more experience as a firefighter. Before I take the captain's test. Right. (laughs) You want to know my answer to that is? Go ahead. You know what's going to make you a good captain? Is being in the front seat, learning how to be a captain. Sitting in the back seat is going to make you a great firefighter. Right. But it's not going to make you a great captain. So you really got to understand. And and that's where our culture has really imposed it. And I look at it, and obviously I'm not new on the job, so I don't know exactly how they're feeling it. But I know when I first got hired, it's like, ooh, seven years, he's taking the test. How dare he? Yeah. It's like, what? Well, and the big conversation is in our you know, in our organization, well, that's how it's written in the book. So the guy's eligible to take it. So where did that standard come from? Well, it's in the book. So mm-hmm. therefore, the higher powers have obviously agreed that this is the appropriate timetable or reasonable timetable. But culturally, it's against our rules. Mm-hmm. So we have an oxymoron going on. Yeah. And you pick the moron of the oxy <laughs> in the sense of <laughs> yeah, who well, is. The question I've always asked myself as I was kind of coming up the ranks was, when is enough? And, you know, I mean, you and I both know, and I think everybody who's probably listened to this can understand this, that that you can have, uh, you know, one year of experience repeated 20 times, right? Or 20 years of experiences, mm-hmm. you know, that, that depending on where you are and what you've done and, and where you're located at and what you open yourself up to, sure. you know, what you volunteer for, you know, if you decide to, you know, jump to different shifts and get other exposures or not. Hey, what are you trying to say? <laughs> but yes, I agree. Absolutely. Where do you put yourself to to project and a lot of firefighters come on the job and they go, Hey, one day I think I want to do this. Well, that one day you better start really planning it out. And what that planning really does mean is sitting down and taking a look at the department and what their projections are. And we know the projections because it's called a drop program. Right. So you can actually look 15 years almost into the, at least 10 years into the future going how many they're going to take. At the same time is you can go down and talk to personnel and say, hey, what's the projection for testing? And you start getting a timeline perce- perception mm-hmm. in, is, is the captain's test going to be in two years? And how much time do I have? What do I take now? Who's going to be eligible? What right. class is going to exactly. be eligible at that point, right? And what's interesting is that that first person uh, from right out of the academy is projecting. That's different, wide eyes. But then you get that middle career guy. Well, I'm comfortable here. Well, I don't know if I want to do this. This yeah. is where I am in my life. My kids are this. 
And I've had that with a recent, a recent uh, probationary firefighter who his middle life is he's got four kids and they're pretty young but growing older. And he's like, I don't know if I want to because I want to spend a lot of time. So I comment. So what's that going to look like in 10 years? They're going to be in college. So if you promoted now, you took this much of time out of your life to look at studying and really sacrificing right now. Yeah. Look at where it's going to pay off in say five years or eight years when they're going to high school, going to college, how much money that's going to be. Now you've gained seniority. You can pick a job that you can go do different things. And as a fire captain, it lent me some latitude that I went to a day job. So I wasn't an A shifter during that two years. <laughs> so I was a day shifter and it let me some latitude where I could work with my daughter and coach her after hours, uh, softball team. So, I mean, guys don't really correlate life at that point with profession and where they want to be. That's interesting. So the, would you, how do you feel about the, when I think of the, the, what, what guys are saying, this is the big sacrifices is the studying, right? They've got to put all this time in, but I feel like what you're saying is if you plan this well enough in advance, you don't have to do it all in one year. You can actually build a pipeline for yourself where you're actually building the skill sets over a longer period of time versus trying to cram it into a season of life. Absolutely. So yeah, all of a sudden you get a wild hair and you want to do this. Oh, well, guess what? You're behind the power curve because you didn't take, say, the uh, the semester class for tactics, tactics and strategy. strategy yeah. Or you didn't take uh, EKG for being a paramedic. Uh, certain things that can prep you that when you're going through it, it's not hurting as much because I remember the pain, you know, studying and getting those. But if you have a good basis from when you're going to go forth, whatever you choose it to be. You can, we have classes for it. I mean, engineering, paramedicism, uh, captainism, all those have classes that you can take and are available at your discretion and you don't have to hurt it all of a sudden. So you can schedule your life prior to the family. So, you know, it's, I'm just going to dive into the fire department. Well, diving into the fire department is planning a 30 year career and that planning really does come on the front end. Where do you project you want to be? Right. Well, it's interesting you say that because we ask so we ask in the interview process, how are you going to survive a twenty five plus year career? And part of what's encased in that that the response to that is not only am I going to live healthy habits and all that kind of stuff, but it's I'm going to be a lifelong learner. Well, if you're going to be a lifelong learner, part of that is you know connected into developing your skill sets and adding value to your, your ability to contribute to the organization, you know, becoming a paramedic, going to TRT, cross training, and then building yourself into, you know, skill set for an engineer and a captain, et cetera. So, you know, one thing I want to add to that though, is, you know, when I, when I went down to special operations and, um, and when I was out of class down there, you came down as a nine five seven, and we sat and talked. And you provided a lot of mentorship for me. You, you led me up in a lot of different ways, and I, um, I really appreciate that. So, I feel like you know, there's lots of people I identify as mentors in my career, and I would name you among them. And so, what I would Thank say you. is, you're welcome. Thank you for doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's your payment. So the. Uh, but, I, but in all seriousness, when I look at, when I say that, I, I think back to um, coming up through the ranks, you know, how important it is it, was it for you? It was very important for me. How important was it for you to identify a mentor and or mentors multiple and, and seek their guidance and their input and their direction? 
Well, when you look, you know, I mentioned some pretty heavy hitters with mm-hmm. Ed and Bill and all those guys. Big captain input for what I would like to aspire to be when I was a captain. And those qualities you you always grab and you you build onto. But there's some subtle mentors on the side that I remember, hey, you know what? Don't forget about this. Don't forget about this class. And having those people and being able to listen to them, you know, and understand that everybody has some input. Just because you only have this many years on or that many years on or you're not you're not a sworn person because a lot of that input was from civilian people from back mm-hmm. in the day. So everybody has a different experience and how you build on that. So those mentors. Now, the guidance on planning the future and how to look at your system, I never had one of those. And that's why I said I think I really got lucky on where I ended up being. But again, somebody... At one point, said, "Open your eyes and take a look at where you're going and what you want to be, and look at you know the short term, look at the long term, and write them down and figure out what's your strategy." You mentioned something earlier about coming in in an in interview. What's the difference between a person coming in and having a conversation about wanting to be a firefighter at the age of 25 versus 35? That 10 years is significant, and so that's where you start looking at us as a department me as a retired, so it's still a department, uh, lending to these people a pathway and not procedures, but guidance that from a 25 year old's perspective, what does that person want versus the 35 year old and how they can build that in their system? You know, sustainability for that 35 year old might be significant because that 25 year career, you're getting into your later years versus the 25 year old. Right. Yeah. The, so, tra- the trajectory of their career is going to yeah. be a little bit, should be a little bit different. Absolutely. Or could be depending on the, the person, mm-hmm. the individual. Um, and yeah, but you bring up a really good point. You know, the, how do you, what does that look like? And who do you go to, to talk to about that? We don't have right? anything. So that's kind of the, that's yeah. kind of when I you know, bring up a mentor, it's like, there's not, there should be some structure to it, right? There should be some, uh, I don't know if there's some mentorship program, but there definitely should be some type of, um, I don't want to call it maybe career counseling. Yeah. Would be, you know, a good way to talk about it to help people understand and navigate it. Because, well, like everything, we, we solve the problem at the kitchen table, right? It's where your lawyer is, your doctor is, your pediatrician, your, yep. your, your, your divorce lawyer, et cetera. You know, your builder, your contractor, and, um, all at the kitchen table. And, and sometimes it's your career counselor as well. And I would submit to anybody who's, who's paying attention to this that you have to be, you have to carefully vet the information that you get there, right? And uh, and make sure that you find somebody who you trust, who can you can bounce ideas off mm-hmm. of and, and get some validation. In the absence of some kind of structure system, you need to seek out people who can give you good direction. Oh, and, and a lot of times it w- it'll be people that you come and experience on the front end of your career. Like, like I said, I've worked with a couple of uh, probationary firefighters that I had in the past. Uh, I've done pretty good. Four of them that I assisted with, the interview portion and a couple of the, the studying to become captains. I'm four for four. So nice. it's pretty cool. Nice. Strong work. Uh, yeah. But also worked with them before that to take a look at where they wanted to go and how to get there. So how to get to that planning. Where are they in life? Let's take a look at your skill sets. Look, let's build on some educational components. Go talk to people. Not just me. Let's build your your infrastructure within the fire service, your network path on building where you want to go. So who is it and where is it specialty that you want to go? And then at the same time as one just approached me a couple months ago 
he talked to me about a day shift opportunity that he had. So I sat down and really dove in because he now has uh, two kids under five years old. Mm. And I'm like, okay, so where do you want to go? What is it in life that you see yourself? Not profession, but where is it in life? And then write that out. Take a look at it because you have a significant other. So you better coincide what that's going to look like because when mm. you start building your professional outlook, they should probably co- correlate fairly easy. And when they come together... Can you imagine how strong of a unit you'll have at that point? It's pretty simple, but not a lot of people sit down and go, well, I better put the two together. Because if I'm going to go to day shift, how does that look for my wife or my husband's life? And does that really work? So you have a joint decision to make with your life on the professional side and on the personal side. And I got a phone call um, the next month, said, chose not to do it. I'm going to look at it in this future that we've built our side of our life on this side, look at the kid's age and then I'll make a decision. Yeah. That's, that's hugely important. I think I was listening to, to Tony Robbins a while back and he, he was talking about goal setting. And, uh, the interesting thing is you can have this, this long range goal. Hey, someday I want to be a captain, but, but if you don't write down some of the things you're going to do daily to get you there, mm-hmm. you're never going to get there. Right. Cause that, that goal is too big. It's too, it's too far away and there's too many things that have to happen before you get there so that you can arrive. And, you know, particularly from a skill development, I think what happens to a lot of folks is they, they, they see it out in the future and they don't do anything about it because they're caught up in the here and now. And then all of a sudden it arrives and they're like, they're scrambling to put together the skill set, and then they're, they may or may not be successful. Um, and then they're, you know, let's say they're not successful. Then they got to, now they're engaged. Now they got to really put the work in and, mm-hmm. you know, go out and build the skill set. So it's so important, you know, what you're saying, you know, this idea that you're going to line up the things in your life. And if you, you know, you have this goal, identify what the goals are and it might be pie in the sky, but, but identify it and then say, all right, what am I going to do this quarter, this year? You know, the today to get me toward that goal. Yeah, you gotta have that as he talks about that massive action plan. Yeah. So you have that, but at the same time he talks about chunking. Yes. So when you take a look at that future and hey, one day I'd like to do that. Well that one day means tomorrow. So if you do that one thing tomorrow that lends that conversation, be it with your significant other or your mentor in the profession, then you've already started. Yeah. So you now can start building that chunking component that is like, all right, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm building that, that infrastructure that's going to make me successful when I finally get to that point. So that's the, that's the biggest part where, yeah, one day, well, one day, what does that mean? Oh, I'm going to be a good firefighter sitting in the back seat and then I'll take the test. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do while you're being that good firefighter, building on your firefighting skills to be that fire captain or be that paramedic or, Hey, you know what? I you can't discard the the firefighter that wants to be a 25-year firefighter. There's nothing wrong with that individual. Matter of fact, I appreciate that from when I was a captain. Ooh, that's past tense. When I was a captain. <laughs> Still getting used to that. Yeah, huh? I am. When I had a when I, you look at John Webb, I came on with John Webb. By bar none, one of the best individuals I know personally. What a great work ethic he has and what a great family ethic he has. But then you look at him as a profession. And I remember sitting next to him in the academy. And I knew from that day he was just going to be phenomenal. And he is. And you look at how that person, you can't take away what they can build on for the department, for the careers of the people that they come across as a mentor. Because he's as much a mentor as anybody else is. Oh, yeah. So everybody out there can 
help the next person in line. It's just you got to reach out. And if you recognize it from the back seat, the front seat, and you see those individuals that you could reach out and help, if you're the one that's looking at the future, creating that chunking infrastructure uh, to look into the future, you need to reach out because it's there. The department, like you said, does not have a career path building uh, section. So it is internal. It's sitting at the at the kitchen table having those conversations. And when you recognize somebody that's willing to reach out, take that hand and, and talk. And I, yeah, and I think that we look at guys who are coming, who want to become firefighters. What do they do? They get with affinity groups. They find firefighters that they know. They start asking questions. And so, you know, and I, I just actually just the other day, I was listening to a group of guys talk about the testing process. And one of the cats said, you have to make becoming a firefighter a full-time job. And so, you know, likewise, if you want to become a company officer, you need to establish that early in your career and start setting, setting the horizon and then setting a plan to get there. Um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't set out on an aircraft and head out for a flight without a plan. And I think this is a very similar kind of situation. And whatever it is you're trying to, if you want to be a 957 or if you want to be a, an engineer or you want to be a senior firefighter and, and then you need to establish what those goals look like and then set a plan for it. Got one more for you. Yeah, we got. So we're talking about actively participating in getting into the fire service. So Tom McCracken and I did that being in the cadet program. Mm-hmm. I was in the cadet program for five years, and then I finally got hired as a professional firefighter. Well, I wanted to be a captain. I wanted to be a paramedic, so I wanted to do it by this age. Okay, you start building those blocks. Well, then comes this term called retired, and you're like, what's that? What does that look like? Because you do sit at the kitchen table. You your Your education is truly over meals, which by far is the one thing that I've I know I will miss the most is the meal time. But that's when you start gathering your intel and looking at, you know, the best ways to do it, the times of years, the strategies that guys have learned over the years. But really, how do you set yourself up for it mentally? How do you set yourself up for it personally? And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. And uh, a very close friend of mine said something one day when they heard the, the trepidation in my voice. She goes, so how long did you take to challenge yourself and study and work to get hired as a firefighter? And I went, well, five years. Well, you just signed your papers. Guess what you got? You got five years to prepare for retirement. And I was like, wow, that makes total sense. Because over the last five years, I reflect back onto the times and I had a counter. Just it kept me online. But there was times that truly it caught me off guard. And at the 36th month, at the three-year mark, I was like, ooh, I got three years left. I better get my button gear and figure out what I'm going to do. And it really did. So those last three years, I worked hard at preparing myself for true retirement. So building yourself up to retirement and then working towards retirement because you listen to people, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, and they go back to work or they're challenged with retirement. There's no difference. You still need to be able to take as much energy from the front end of your career and apply it to the back end of your career. Right. And that in between, you know, like I said, we've been talking about it, building those building blocks of where you're going to be and how to get there. It just doesn't happen overnight. You have to project it, write it down. And if there's other people involved in family, you sit them down because you're running a parallel path. And if you're not going that direction, you know, we all have heard those dinner time uh, negative conversations about relationships going elsewhere. 
Well, and you know, you bring up a really good point because as quickly, you know, we said this in the very beginning of the conversation, like how quickly those years pass. So without a plan in place, you're not, you're not, you're not hacking time and you're not measuring time as you go. And so retirement can sneak up on you and, uh, and certainly can be shocking, you know, and, and you either financial preparedness for retirement Mm -hmm. so that you can work or not work or do whatever it is you want to do. Or even if it's going to transition your career into something else, are you, uh, you know, are you doing some academic preparation? Are you doing some personal preparations so that you can make that transition uh, um, into, you know, this, your second phase of life or whatever that looks like, depending on how old you are and all that jazz. Um, but it's, again, it's about pl- having a plan in place and, and thinking through some of the variables. And man, there's, you know, there's been plenty of retirees um, who have said, you know, I wasn't ready to go. Oh, yeah. You know, no. cause, and I think part of that is because they didn't have a vision for what that second phase would look like. And when you put time on it, you know, everybody hears the best three. Well, mm. depending on what tier you fall into, it's no longer the best three. It's the best five. Mm-hmm. So you have to really start looking at what the drop looks like. So that's five years. And then your best three, if you're in that tier. So that's really an eight year perspective. Yeah. Where are you in your career to look at that eight years? Right. Now it's your best five. That's a 10 year component. And then how do you build up to that? And, and you said something in there education-wise. One regret in my career. I never took full advantage of our uh, tuition reimbursement. I, I feel that I robbed myself of that. I look at Jerome Dunn and I just go, that's outstanding. He caught me at, he would have been a great mentor for me in the sense that a uh, handful of years ago, when he was in community involvement, we went and taught at the Phoenix Day School for the Deaf. Mm-hmm. And he talked about education, and he was so profound. And I was too late in my career, I think, at that point, to where I could have capitalized on getting a f- furthering my degree. I got two AAs, but I could have gotten a bachelor's. You could have gone that much farther. So that is something that I I just I beat on the pulpit over. Take advantage of that because you can't get that back. Yeah, you know it's funny. I was I uh, when I finished my bachelor's degree many many moons ago, I went to my uncle and I said, "Hey, and my uncle's highly educated and, and very successful." And so I assumed that if I threw education on the table, he'd be like, "Oh, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah, go get more education." And I said, "Hey, I'm I'm thinking about going to grad school and getting a, a master's degree." And he goes, he looks at me and says, "You're a fireman. Why would you do that?" <laughs> and I backpedaled because I'm like, "Oh, I just." In my mind, education, you just go get education. And I hadn't had a real plan for it. You just could do it. And he said, listen, man, there's two reasons to go get education. One, it's a it's a gateway to making more money in your career. Mm-hmm. And in the fire service, academics are not always that. The second thing he said goes, if someone else is paying for it, you de- definitely go get it. Right. And I was like, ooh, well, I got that. <laughs> well, let's go back to number one. Well, let's talk about that. Let's look at the trends across the United States right. in education. Right. Well, so the statement I made, that's kind of yesteryear. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Things are changing. And, you know, frankly, and not to you know, you're frank. say something. <laughs> Sorry. So, so uh, specifically, <laughs> the uh, when you talk about... Um, making more money within education. Like there, the, the, the fire service is getting way more technical and things are evolving and, you know, the Homeland defense stuff, et cetera. There's, there's lots of ways that you can capitalize on advanced education. I I have to lend it to chief Shannon, Tom Shannon out of Scottsdale fire. Mm-hmm. He made a requirement that his battalion chiefs have an education. 
and more than likely, I think it's a bachelor, so I'm just uh, projecting. But that's significant when you take a look at what they, as battalion chiefs, division chiefs, however they that's divided over there, running programs or a battalion, looking at what that is. That It's yeah. not the catch-all. Obviously, experience and who they are, but the education's a big part of uh, learning and, and those experiences. And I got to lend it to uh, Jeff Zintek, my partner. He went on and got his education, and he's, I think, one class shy of it. Tom McCracken, as I mentioned, he's got, he graduated his. And it's great to hear that. I just, that's my one regret. Yeah. I, I can honestly say, so I barely, I scratched my, scratch and clawed my way out of high school. And, uh, I mo- told you Tom almost made me fail. So it's <laughs> so more impressive that he got his bunch. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> so when I, when I kept going to school, the thing that I took away from it was I, I learned how to write and I learned how to research and I learned how to understand numbers a little bit. Now I'm no mathematician, but some stats and things like that, you know, understand that a little bit. So that, has been hugely important to as I've grown up in the organization, projects I've been assigned to and things like that, the ability to add value to that or to even understand what the project is has been improved directly. And I would say that's a direct correlation to going and getting more education. Yeah, the three of us sitting at Station 8. So Tom McCracken was on the engine, Jeff Scripsman was on the squad, myself, and we are all in that same little ambo dorm right there, and we'd sit in the hallway in our chairs and chat. And I mentioned education. Well, I got left at the end of the pack. I retired instead of getting the education. The other two, Jeff Scripsma and Tom, I've already mentioned, but Jeff, he went on and got his uh, degree as well. Mm-hmm. And now he's the deputy chief and he's running numbers and he's running programs and he's uh, writing all these. And I'm just looking going, wow, that's impressive, writing all that stuff out. So that does project you to that next level of being able to do that. So yeah. 100% It's a, it's a skill you. that you develop, yeah. yeah. To, to your original point and to my uncle's point, which is if you have a program that offers you tuition reimbursement, take it. You've got to take advantage oh, of that on opportunity. It. That is something to yeah. jump on by far. Yeah. And and take a look at how that education builds into your career path mm-hmm. planning. Because who would have known I was two years old looking at a rural metro fire truck put out a tree fire that I would be sitting here. Then meeting Tom McCrack and the evolution of coming through. Yeah. It's great that I met those wonderful mentors. I just wish I would have had a little more guidance. I wish I would have met Jerome Dunn 20 years ago, and he said, education, education, education. Right. And now, I'm not going to take away all those old-timers that told me, put in for deferred comp, deferred comp, deferred comp, because ultimately retirees, that's paying me off right now. Thank yeah. you very much. But yeah, there's so many different uh, opportunities within the department, within this industry that are allotted. These guys that are coming on the job, they don't know it all. They look at fire trucks and they go, hey, that's great. But there's so many more opportunities that can be offered to them. They just need to reach out and, and look at what they have available mm-hmm. and then plan it out. Plan it on um, on both sides of the fence, professionally and, per- and personally. Otherwise, you know, you're going to stay in that somewhere someday. But if you make that, that plan, you create the chunking, you start going towards that direction of education, building on where you want to be, even if it, it's going, you know, opposite the fire department and you want to project yourself outside, hey, there's nothing wrong with planning. Well, so let's talk about that for a second because one of the things that you've done in the course of your career is you've, you have gone outside the organization and you do a lot of teaching mm-hmm. uh, in a national level in the hazmat world. And how, how was that something that you breached and got into in your career? Well, with Jeff Zintek, you know, he was out. He, he wrote a field operating guide for hazmat, mm-hmm. hazardous materials, and he was invited to, to teach at a couple of different places. And topics came up such as Mayday. 
Well, he was already traveling. He'd, he'd got a year or two on me. Well, the Mayday came up, and I was provided the opportunity, which I would be amiss if I didn't say his name, Ron Jameson. Uh, he, he opened the door for me for my pathway down the hazmat world and allowed me to coordinate our hazmat programs, our technician uh, education, and I, I owe him a tremendous amount of appreciation for him letting me do that. But building on that information and then having Jeff reach out to me and say, hey, do you want to come to these symposiums and talk about your Mayday? So, yes. you know, And that's where that's allotted. And then at the same time, Ron bringing me into the technician component in the 200 class and our 200 class is our technician class. So we teach our guys uh, technician level hazmat on a 200-hour level or time period. Well, understanding I was to... Uh, work for IFSAC or not work for IFSAC, but uh, manage our IFSAC uh, liaison, which is a third party accreditation. And they come in and take a look at our program, make sure our testing's appropriate to the standard. IFSAC opened up a lot of opportunities for me internationally. So I would meet because it's international fire accreditation. So that opened up that. So it was just opportunities that lent so, itself. So what I hear you saying is you started by putting yourself out there and, t- and teaching locally, mm-hmm. right? Inside the agency. And then as you, so you, so you're teaching locally and then you, um, it's about relationship building and networking and, and then getting involved, right? So demonstrating your capacity, um, and your skill set, And then you end up, you know, opportunities seem to manifest themselves when you do that. You want another baseline of that where I learned how to do that? 100% my father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, years ago, I'm going to give you something. Not many people still know this is, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. Oh, secrets. All I got. Good stuff. Uh, so when I was a cadet, I had the opportunity to put a mascot outfit on for the fire department. It was Sparky and Fire Pal. I can't believe I just told you that. There's only a handful that still Are remember Are there pictures me. anyway? Oh, there's plenty of pictures, but you can't tell it's me under there. Okay. But Steve Jensen, God rest his soul, uh, allowed me that opportunity. And he, he kind of gave me uh, direction. As well as when I got in that suit, my dad said something. He goes, hey, they don't know who's in that suit. They don't know you from Adam, but you represent. And it could be young, old, male, female. You are the Phoenix Fire Department representative. I was like, wow, you got to be nice to everybody, he says. He says, you got to shake hands with everybody. you got to hug everybody. you got to be nice to everybody. And where that related and crossed over to was, well, who runs the fire department? The secretaries. The civilians. Fire trucks don't get on the road and move unless somebody's wrenching on it. And that's not a sworn person. So you got to take care of everybody that you come in contact with. You diss somebody, disrespect them, you know that's not going to help you any. So Steve Jensen was a civilian he had a lot of power. Carol Gross, same person, same same area. Uh, Karen Tester back in the day, secretary at community involvement. Those three people had a lot to do with my upbringing. And they weren't sworn people. So just because you think you need to shake hands with somebody who has a gold badge doesn't mean that's not going to get you anywhere. It's building that network, as you said, and making sure that you're a good person as well as a good employee that they'd want to hire you. they They want to promote you. They want to work with you. 
So that comes down to that mentoring, that if you have somebody coming through and they don't know our culture as a probationary firefighter or you see somebody getting off our culture, you as a mentor on the department have a responsibility to guide them back in right? and reach out and provide that to them. Right. Well, I think the, the leadership that you can provide at any level, if you're a, if you're a firefighter or a senior firefighter, engineer, captain, I feel like it's your responsibility to provide leadership to your peers and, and your subordinates or however you want to frame it. But this, you know, to the members of our organization, if you see someone who's getting out outside the boundaries, you've got to, um, and just from a from a you know brotherly love kind of situation, pull that guy back into the into the circle of trust, right, and help them understand how to navigate the organization effectively. What did we mention earlier, though? Our culture. Mm-hmm. So as much as our culture has provided us those outlets and the peer groups and uh, people that we can reach out to, it still has a strong arm on us. It mm-hmm. still says you're a badass. Hey, get over it. You know we have bad days. Right. And those bad days can lead to a bad life, depending on what your personal circumstances and it reflects on it. Mm-hmm. So balance it out and use it. You know, it's not, Hey, we have SCBAs for a reason. You don't have to breathe through a mustache anymore. Right. So quit using that mentality in today's efforts. Right. Is reach out and get that help. Yeah. You know, there's a, uh, they call it the V word vulnerability, oh. right? We have to be willing to, be vulnerable with one another and, and support one another. And if, you know, and if you need something, you know, if you need, uh, information or whatever, it's not a sign of weakness if you don't know something, but if you show up on an incident and you don't know, well, let's just use a simple example. If you don't know where a certain tool is and you spend the next 10 minutes doing laps around the truck, instead of spending 10 seconds asking somebody to help me direct you, um, you know, we have to be willing to allow people to not know things. And then we, and then we get them educated and tune them up, you know? Yeah. Um, and what's going to happen is you're going to search for that for 10 minutes and then you're going to have to do that 10 different times on 10 different trucks <laughs> versus now, if you ask for the help mm-hmm. and you get the help and you do it again and you got to ask again, there's something wrong. Right. Right. But you take a look at that vulnerability and it applies all the way across the board when you take a look at who you are and you know, it goes back to, again, like you said, that career path is being able to say, it's my career. Yeah, the Phoenix Fire Department you work for. Yeah. yeah, there's a culture imposition onto you. And, well, you know, I don't want to take it at seven years. That's too early. They tell me it's too Who's they? This is your career path. Right. It's only 20 to 30 years. You know, you can go at 20, but really, it's your career path. Make it happen for you. Reach out to those people and gather the information of why they think that's too early. Right. And then make sure it doesn't happen. You know what's interesting about that? And we can break this down a little bit. Why does why do people they <laughs> right. why do they say you shouldn't take it at seven years? If organizationally we say that that's an acceptable timetable. And I, I think it boils down to their own personal insecurities. <laughs> well, I I I love that because I've always put Kind of, and if I remember right, the three different categories when you're testing, it's, you know, the, why do people test? I don't, I want to test so I don't work for that person. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, if that's your motivation, but, uh, there's a lot of people that come out of those that have those perspectives and you get the old timers. I'm going to work my way down. The old timers that looks at you and says, yep, the youngster took it. That's fine. I'll listen to him. I don't have a problem. And what's great is I sat in the front of the seat of ladder tender 12 with Ernie Pinson and Gary or Greg Wolf and Rick Lodi. And they were like, Hey, B 
be my leader. Let's you were go. a fairly young captain. Oh, way way young. I was acting captain back then. They were like, "How can we help you?" Yeah, don't 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 uh, think on one day that they didn't harass me multiple times during the day, but they were there to support me. So you got that group, and then you go down to the next one. The next group down is a lot of times that middle range that either had taken the test and didn't do well, mm. or is thinking about taking the test but didn't plan for it. And they're looking at you going, you're taking it? Really? You? Hold on. Where's your disgruntledness? Where does that come from? Why? So that's where I lend to that person that says, why are they doing it? Ask them. Well, I took it and I didn't do well. I'm sorry. I want to take it. Or the person that's disgruntled because, oh, you're too young. Well, what makes me too young? Why didn't you take it? Well, I didn't plan well. Right. Well, I think we can overcome that as a department and make sure that those people are successful in their career and not have that attitude. And then you have the youngsters that like, ooh, he's taking the test. Well, maybe I could. Or why is he taking the test? He only has, but I don't know anything because I really don't know my career path because I'm still early on the job. Right. We can still overcome that by provi- providing them an outlet of where and how to build on that next one. So it comes down to just planning. And what do we do on a daily basis? We plan. Right. We create plans in our jobs. Yeah. Some are emergencies. <laughs> some are long-term for the Super Bowl coming up. Right. Yeah, the... um I feel like what's where that insecurity comes from is their own lack of of comfort with their skill set, and so they're they're thinking, well, this seven year dude can't possibly have the requisite knowledge because at seven years I didn't have that experience or whatever. But we don't always know what set of experiences no. that person has or what the maturity they have. You know, you get there's a uh, met a kid the other day who's. I think he's 24, but he was a Green Beret, served like four tours in Afghanistan. Yikes. Okay, that dude has some experiences, experiences. right? Absolutely. And so if you provide some training over the next five years for that guy, is he going to be able to be a great company officer? Maybe, right? Most likely. Teaching our culture. Yeah. If if he's able to assimilate the right skill set and executes it and practices it, he's got a base of knowledge that... Um, sets him up for success, decision making under under uh, duress, etc. Right, mm-hmm. so good base of knowledge versus a dude who who uh, came right out of high school and jumped on the job. Right, different set of experiences, but again, you don't always know what that person uh, developmentally has been exposed to. And you still can't negate the guy that just comes out of high school, right? But they still I'm, might be motivated in that. Absolutely, it, and they may go get the requisite skill set. Mm-hmm. But what I'm just saying is, like, oh, experience-wise, yeah, you have to think about the person individually. We can't just blanketly say, "Well, because I didn't have, because I sure. wasn't ready, he's not ready," um, which I think is where a lot of that comes from. Um, That's why I look at that middle middle group. Mm-hmm. That's that. Oh. Where am I in my life? Yeah. What happened? Versus yeah. the older group, they might have lived through that, and they're just in the maturity level. They're they're beyond their – they're good, and they're going to support what they need to at that right. point, which right. by that crew that I mentioned with Greg and uh, Pinson and Rick, what a phenomenal group to work for. And I learned a tremendous amount not only on the job but as a as an op, a company officer and what I needed to do to support them. It was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, that's great, man. So looking back – Oh, boy. <laughs> what would you say to 21-year-old Daryl? Ooh. If I could, again, keep going. Just make sure that when you're doing it, you can reach out. You can ask people questions. Don't be afraid of making those mistakes. And I learned that probably more as I got older on the job because I made a tremendous amount of mistakes. But fess up to them. That vulnerability, that that ability to fess up to it. Uh, I still remember I, I screwed up. 
I turned engine eight around, which had a turning radius of the Titanic at the time, and I did it in the wrong place. And I knew it was bad. We got back to the station. Uh, Chief Randall started, or not Chief, but he was he retired as Chief, but Captain Randall, Lloyd Randall, was walking up to me, and I went, Lloyd, I apologize. I will never let that happen again. So it's just that projection and being able to be vulnerable in the sense of make mistakes, admit it, but also at the same time be vulnerable, learn from your surroundings, and the people around you have a tremendous amount of experience, as you mentioned. You know, you just don't know. And, and well, always make your own judgment. You know, the new person on the block, hey, you hear the stories, make your own judgment. There's so many opportunities just lying, you know, around the department in conversation such as this, at the kitchen table, making coffee in the morning, whatever it is, there's just so much to absorb in so little time. And I say that, strange enough, after 32 years. It's so little time. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. So let me ask you this. If there's if there's somebody out there who wants to reach out to you, bring you in to teach hazmat, whatever, where would they, where would they contact you? So I do have an email. I've had it for a while. Uh, it's a Gmail account. It's spop. S, so special ops, yep, 957. So S-P-O-P-S 957 at gmail.com. Nice. Yep. Instagram, Facebook, any of that, Jaws? Oh, yeah, I got an Instagram. I think it's Daryl B. Wiseman 1230. Happens to be my badge number. Nice. So DB Wiseman 1230 on Instagram. And then uh, Facebook, you can find anybody on Facebook if you're that, if you're the old guy. <laughs> because so Facebook's old. That's you true. know that, right? So it's Instagram now. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm sure Greg told you all about his Instagram and him. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. My, uh, I got on Facebook yesterday for my son's birthday and posted a you know, thing on there. And I told him, hey, I posted this thing on Facebook. He goes, why would you do that? Yeah. I don't go on Facebook. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so Snap or uh, Instagram these days. And even Instagram's going out the door. Right on. Well, hey, man, I really... Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time um, and sitting down with me. I know in retirement you can have a whole lot better thing to do. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time and sitting with me and, and sharing your thoughts with us. You're surely welcome. As I would always say, don't call me Shirley. Hey, so thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Special thanks to Daryl Weisman for sharing his thoughts and and experience with us. Uh, hopefully it was of some value to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, get on whatever platform you enjoy listening on, subscribe, and you know what? Get on Apple Podcasts, rate, and leave a comment about whether or not you like it. If you don't like it, leave a comment. That's that's one of the best ways that we can improve the the quality of the content and uh, make this more valuable to you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Rain Gray at Fireground Fitness. I can also be found, of course, on Instagram. And despite it not being a thing anymore, I can still be found on Facebook at Rain Gray at Fireground Fitness. So do not hesitate to reach out. If you have any questions, comments, words of wit, please do so. In the meantime, keep getting after it. Lean in. Find ways to improve yourself. Go on and get some.